The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hey everybody and welcome to Shackles, Burlap, and Lies. I'm your host Ethan Gilson and this is episode 31, the first of 2021. Yeah, I've been a little delinquent, I've been a little busy, thankfully, so I'm not going to complain too much, but hopefully this will be the, the first of new episodes, many new episodes coming your way. And today we have a guest that uh, I've spent a fair amount of time with, is a trainer, is a um a rigger obviously and a very smart guy when it comes to cm hoist and that is brian leister how are you doing today brian i'm doing great ethan thanks for having me on today appreciate it oh thank you for being here so first question as always who are you uh well my name is brian leister and uh i am formerly the head rigger of olive garden uh, and then um, moved on from there to work at uh, Walt Disney World for 14 years as an entertainment rigger. Um, made up my own job title. We can get into that later. And now I work for Columbus McKinnon, uh, run a training facility here in Lidditz, PA at the Rock Lidditz campus. Um, I've, I've talked in numerous past episodes about the campus at Rock Lidditz and uh, how awesome it is. And... Uh, they just opened, is it pod five? Yes. Uh, surprisingly yep. enough with all the lockdowns and all the other stuff going on, rock Lidditz was, uh, still able to move forward with the new building. So we have a pod five that are, is already sold out for space. There's tenants, you know, for all the spaces. And we also have a black box theater that is nearing completion right outside of our pod two building right now. That's awesome. Um, the only reason I know about Pod Five is, uh, I believe, Four Wall is the the large tenant in that particular building, and they've moved on campus. They their PA office had been about a mile away, but they are now on campus. So, yes, uh, that that press release went out a week ago, beginning of February, as we're recording this. So, um, how did you get into rigging? I mean, first of all, the important questions. I've been to restaurants where you see a motorcycle rigged up above everything and, and such. Olive Garden. Is it really just the breadsticks and salads that you're rigging? Or, <laughs> I mean, do you get into the tour of Italy? Um, actually, that reference is uh, when I first started at uh, Disney years and years ago, back in like 2002, I was shooting Spotlight uh, at Pleasure Island. And then I got uh, a lot more work in the warehouse area loading trucks, moving, you know, pushing boxes, that kind of thing. And then um, very soon after that, got a full-time role there and eventually transitioned on to the rigging team because uh, one of my my mentors, Dale Roland, uh, he saw me um, putting tape on the road cases that were going out to a show and I was folding the edge of the tape. Um, and he came up and he was just like, thank you. And I was like, what are you talking about? And um, he said, nobody does that. And it makes it so difficult to deal with. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, the folded edge there, it's, you know, easy to take the tape off. And I was like, okay, cool. 
he and I uh, got to be rather good friends. And uh, when I needed another spot to go, he brought me in on the rigging team. And granted, at this time, I had zero experience in rigging. Like I had done theater throughout high school, uh, community theater, a little bit of professional theater in Central Florida. Um, but I didn't know anything about rigging. Like I could tie my shoes and that was about it. Um, and when some of the riggers found out that the job I had right before I came to Disney was at Olive Garden, they used to um, bust my balls and say, oh, yeah, the head rigger of Olive Garden's here. Everything's good now. And um, it just became one of those inside jokes that depending on how you take that sort of thing, um, you could get offended or upset or whatever. But, you know, if you own it and make it yours, uh, it becomes a positive thing. So it's even on my like my Facebook profile that I was the head rigger at Olive Garden. I think it's brilliant. I think it's awesome. It. I've mentioned numerous episodes that each individual's journey, their path is you take turns. You go in a direction you think you're going someplace and life throws a curveball at you and you adjust. So um, I think it's a great way of. Uh, of being lighthearted in, in terms of what your path has been. Um, and and it, I, I half joked when I was saying there are restaurants that hang stuff. Um, what's the Midwest chain that almost sounds like a, a, a oil change place? Steak and lube or something oh, like that? Quaker, yeah, Quaker Steak and Lube. We have one up here in PA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, the first one I've ever been in is there's one by the ETC factory in, in Wisconsin. Um, so I've gone there and they have a motorcycle hung from the ceiling. And of course, it's, it's wire rope and wire rope clips. And I'll be like, eh, can I get a different table? I don't want to yeah. sit under this thing. <laughs> so there is some rigging going on in restaurants, hence that portion of the joke. But um, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. Like Cracker Barrel. Have you been to Cracker Barrel? Oh, yeah. Have you looked up around and they have like scythes and farm tools and pitchforks yep. hanging up overhead? Oh, yeah. Um, Cracker Barrel is a very, very popular location for professional wrestlers to go to. It's uh, first of all, they're all over the place. They're consistent in terms of their quality. You can get a lot of protein really cheap. And that's what, you know, a lot of wrestlers love to do is eat, you know, a couple of chickens and veggies <laughs> and that's it. Uh, or bodybuilders. So, yeah, you, they hang a lot of stuff. Um, yeah, it's I wouldn't start a brawl in there. No, no. Um it's interesting to look at non entertainment based suspension and how they do things. If you spend any time doing installation work in a theater, the acoustical panels are hung a, a lot of times like drop ceilings with uh, whether it's 12 gauge or maybe 10 gauge wire that's just twisted a certain number of times. I'm sure they have a hey, it has to be twisted, you know, X number of times. And it goes from a, an anchor in the roof pan down to the acoustical panel and they twist it and that's what's hanging it. And they have a certain number of them. Occasionally you see some wire rope. I just did an installation where uh, all of the acoustical panels were hung with eighth inch wire rope and wire rope clips. And every single wire rope clip was on backwards. Oh, wow. And I was like, who do I complain to? Who's going to listen? Um, so, yeah, it's it's I loved how you. 
long-winded story of I love how you said that you were the head rigger at Olive Garden. <laughs> um so what kind of events were you doing rigging at Disney? Um well I know the reputation from people on the outside is that oh you work at a theme park as a rigger, you don't do real rigging. Um and yeah, there was a lot of things like banner hangs, uh, putting up sticks of trust for lights, you know, a lot of the stuff that on the outside wouldn't really necessarily be rigging. Um, but we actually had quite a few venues uh, that you do a lot of theatrical rigging. So there's a bunch of stages, theatrical stages there where you're crawling around in the grid, working on winches, doing maintenance and inspections or changing out scenic items. Um, that are on flown systems, a lot of them very antiquated. Uh, and then we also had the the sports complex. So the, the biggest things that I did there besides theatrical rigging and maintenance would be putting up roof systems outside. We did a lot of that. We had a, uh, a giant roof system that we'd put up. It used to be like 12 times a year. And then I think they caught on uh, to the labor cost because then they'd have us put it up and leave it up for like three months at a time sometimes. Right. And then... Um, our sports complex has an arena uh, with arched beams, uh, 85 feet high. And so I kind of cut my teeth on the arena rigging side by uh, taking over the annual varsity cheerleading events. So I did those from 2006 to 2013, pretty much every year I was uh, the uh, head rigger for those. And that was a really great experience because they would, you know, it'd be the same, but then they'd change a bunch of stuff. So you had to, even though you know the room really well, uh, you have to really think on your feet. I remember one of my most embarrassing moments was uh, we were about the eighth bridal into the room. So these big bridles, uh, like 20, 20 and 30 foot lengths. And uh, we were about the eighth one into the room when I realized that I had the guys start one beam short. And so every bridal had to be, and they weren't symmetrical. So every bridal had to be shifted 16 feet back. And, uh, that set us back quite a while, but you know, it's the mistakes like that, that, uh, that you try to remember and learn from. Absolutely. It, it, I was just reading a meme, um, on Facebook before we started recording, which was from uh, Saturday night live from, uh, the news week. And, uh, it, it was talking about, um, it's never too late in life to start a career path. And they were talking that Vera Wang didn't design her first dress until her forties. Harrison Ford was a carpenter until his thirties, all this different stuff. And that Oprah got fired at 23 and like, Oh geez, wasn't it a mistake to fire Oprah at 23? And the response was no, because at 23 she was, she deserved to be fired. What she was doing, you know, whatever the reason she was fired, I, I they didn't say, She's like, she had to be fired because that's what helped contribute to her becoming Oprah. That experience is what created what she would become. Oh, yeah. And it's how you deal with those changes again that help you develop and, and get better. So whether it's starting the points in the wrong place or I make a very conscious effort that when I say something wrong recording in a podcast, I'll leave it in there. Because I make mistakes. I The assumption that any of us are perfect and know everything probably gets us in more trouble than not. And it certainly is hard for us as individuals to take criticism 
when you do something incorrect. But when you think about it, usually you're upset that you did something incorrect and that you got caught and not not <laughs> that someone's, you know, telling you you did something wrong. Right. It's more getting you know, called out's worse than right, you right. Know, made the mistake. Right. But, you know, you make mistakes. And if you can't learn from them and, and progress, then it's not going to go very well for you. Um, yeah, I think that's something that's really important uh, as a, you know, someone that does training. And I know you do training, too. And I sat in on uh, one of your classes and I think you're a great trainer. And I think what makes a great trainer and what I observe from you, what I what I try to remember when I'm doing training, uh, as well as some other trainers I've worked with, is that um, you're you're live right in front of people and you're eventually you're going to say the wrong thing or you're not going to know the answer to a question somebody has and how you handle that is what I think makes the difference between a good trainer uh, and a bad trainer. Yep. So you spent a bunch of years at Disney. How did the, the change come from, I'll use the term active rigging to um, what is fundamentally an educational position? Um, for those who have never looked it up, um, the training facility for CM at Rock Lidditz, they do, they certainly do what everyone I think is used to, which is the CM hoist training. Um, but you also do rope access training as well as general rigging principle trainings out of that location. Um, and it's a few years old. It's uh, the first location for training for CM that was specifically designed for the entertainment market. There are locations for CM on their industrial side. Um, but until Rock Lidditz, if I'm correct, most of the training, the hoist training was done by the trainer traveling to different locations and doing them kind of like how I do my trainings. You work with a partner organization that's hosting the training. Um so how did that position start for you and how did that shift go? It was scary. I will tell you that. I mean, I had been at Disney for 14 years, but uh, everything that had happened to me there was basically preparing me for this thing. I had no idea was coming. Um, the last five or six years at Disney, I had spent, I, I took a curriculum that was given to me, expanded it and did training for my team. Uh, that team was five of us when I started with it, and it was 22 when I left. So we grew that team quite a bit, and I grew a program of training through there as well. And so transitioning into this role here, well, one, required me to move from Florida to PA, which was quite scary, uh, having been in Florida for 30 years. Um, but that transition I was prepared for because I like autonomy. And that's what I have in this role. I get to develop the curriculum. Uh, like you said, before we had our training facility here, it was primarily just the motor classes that we would do, right? And so um, Dave, who used to work for CM, he would go out and he'd do a motor class or he'd do a mega school and he'd partner with other trainers to kind of flesh that whole thing out at different sites. And um, since I started here, I wanted to say, well, I can't just do motor classes like every week or every month, you know, for the rest of my career here. Um, and CM was incredibly responsive and uh, supportive of a new curriculum. And so I brought in the Sprat rope access training, 
Uh, we do these rope access workshops as well. Uh, we do all this hands-on rigging, rigging math. Um, a lot of stuff I even had to kind of self learn, um, or just to make sure I knew enough to teach it. And when I approach those things that I don't know enough to teach, I, I try to reach out to somebody else and bring in a guest trainer, uh, to help complement things. But, but our facility here is definitely all about the entertainment industry and, uh, trying to make sure that, you know, uh, the, the, the message that I like to put out there as a trainer is, you know, we'll train you on our products, but we don't want you just to be safe using our product. We want you to be safe getting to the place where you use your product. So that's why we do fall protection and rope access and yep. all these other things that aren't necessarily tied to that, you know, core product. And it keeps me busy. Well, that's certainly uh, an important thing. Um, how has training been affected for you um, over the last year during the pandemic? Certainly, we all experienced the no one could do anything, no one could travel. Um, a lot of trainers who were not uh, tied to a physical location uh, adapted to going online, did some different things. What did you guys do? Uh, well, we had to pivot pretty quickly, but we were actually moving in a direction for more online training. And just as that happened... And so I've been, uh, when the lockdowns first were enacted back in March of last year, we came in with a, like a four part webinar series, you know, about motors. And, uh, we did some, we did a great live event with the folks at OPAV in, in Orlando. Uh, and those were really well received. Um, those kind of fell off the, the radar a little bit because again, people are, you know, trying to get work, um, uh, and, uh, we went to doing online training. So we've taken like the motor class, for instance, that you would, you know, we would do on site or here at our classroom and we've retooled that so that now you can still do those things, but you could also take it virtually as an instructor led. So, you know, I'll be on the screen there and you'll be at your place and I'll guide you through the process or, uh, and a, a really exciting new skill is the online learning, like, the self-paced online learning. So there's a really great authoring tool I've been using um, called Articulate 360 to develop online training. Um, I had to kind of learn how to use that and uh, as well as learn how to edit videos and things like that. So it, it was a great opportunity for me as a trainer to kind of pivot and rethink about the way I deliver that training, um, especially for online stuff, because, you know, you're not there. Uh, to answer questions there, right. you've got to make sure you give them the right amount of information, not too much, um, and make sure it's, it's interactive to where people want to, you know, click buttons. They're not just sitting there hitting next, 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 like some kind of like corporate compliance training that most people have to take. That's been my biggest knock on online OSHA 10 and 30 training. Um, we've seen a, an uptick in, industry-specific OSHA training, which is great. OSHA still says, you know, I'm making up this number, 80% of the content. It could be more, it could be less. You have to teach this. In OSHA 30, you have to teach about silica uh, contamination, which is, you know, you're drilling into a concrete wall. 
How often does an arena rigger do that? Unless you're doing install work, maybe never. Um, but they do allow the instructor a little bit of the curriculum to tailor. And how I choose to describe it is it's OSHA 10 or 30 in context. How do you apply the regulations to what we do in our industry? So the downside to the online training is you can't ask questions. It's usually a dry delivery that could be several years old and bad music. Um, and as you said, it's not very engaging. The advantage is it's usually very economic. So you have to kind of weigh that balance of the value. Yes, it may be more expensive to do something that's industry specific. Um, a lot of companies are doing it live. So like Zoom, it's not a recording. So you have a chance to ask questions and, you, and for each person to decide, is that important? Which I think is, because especially with OSHA 30 or with more complicated topics, being to, able to ask questions and get an explanation of a concept can be hugely valuable in your learning process. And that's that's kind of a three-pronged approach that I'm taking right now because we reopened our training facility in June of last year, granted with like reduced uh, occupancy and a lot of mitigations in place. So we still do offer that hands-on training. Uh, we still will go you know, to a site and do training for a group of people. But when you look at the online training versus the hands-on training, so you come over here and uh, you do three days of class with me and you leave, uh, and you'll have whatever notes you took and, you know, your retention at best, uh, from what I've read is about 20%, you know, of what you experienced. Um, and, but the hands-on part helps reinforce a lot of that, which is great, but the online learning has a distinct advantage, kind of a trade-off really, because the online learning, you can go back to it, like, uh, for however long the provider sets it for. So for me, yeah. it's like, you know, I'll give you a two year cert for online training. And within that two years, you can go back whenever you want and freely navigate through that course material. So I think there's a lot to be said for that aspect of it too. Um, when the learner can go back and, and reference that information directly, instead of having to look at like notes they wrote when they were like, you know, before they got their coffee in the morning or whatnot. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, there are pros and cons. It's another tool in the workbox to to be able to use. Um, you know, it, what I was going to say was I've done CM hoist training and I'm very upfront with people that I've done the training numerous times. I've never done the CM hoist certification as a technician. Um, I haven't had the occasion to, but I've done a bunch of trainings with with Dave in the past. I've seen it hundreds of times. I've done the online training. Um, the hands-on side of tearing into a hoist is so valuable. Um, you know, fundamentally, a hoist is not a super complicated device, but there are still some very specific parts in there that it's helpful to understand, you know, you learn very quickly on old style brakes when you take them apart. How do you take them apart? How do you not lose the parts? How do you put the? <laughs> how do you put them all back together? You learn the tricks. How do you? You know how do you do this stuff? Older CM hoists, getting the the end caps back on the chassis and getting the screws to line up can be an infuriating process. 
And if you don't have that chance to learn to do it, you, you'll drive yourself nuts. So that hands-on side is is really important. Um, one of the big curriculums curriculums that you do at Rock Lidditz is rope access training. How has, in, in your observation, how has the skill of rope access, um, how has it promulgated our industry? It, for a few years ago, it became the very hot thing. Like people were like, oh, I'm going to go get rope access, access training. Um, how have you seen it? kind of take off and where do you think its strengths are? And then I would ask, where do you think some of its weaknesses are? Um, it, it is, you know, it was the hot, the hot thing a few years ago. And luckily I was in that time frame to be able to get my training and, you know, get myself into it. Uh, the, the strengths are definitely where you have so much more safety involved and so much more training. So you don't get some guy who's like, Oh, I, I do mountain climbing in my free time. I can, you know, rappel down and fix that thing for you. And there's no planning. There's no rescue. You know, no one knows how to get them. Maybe they're on a single rope. Um, so it is moving the culture of safety, which has become, you know, so much more prominent in our industry. It is moving that culture of safety in a positive direction to say, you know, there, there's certification for this. You should be getting certified to do this kind of work. Um, the availability of training is a lot easier nowadays. And the fact that those, for folks that are uh, IATSE members, um, every IATSE member I've had through my Sprat class has gone in and gotten their tuition reimbursed, uh, which is great, especially now. I mean, a lot of people don't have the money to put up, you know, up front. But at least knowing you'll get it back uh, is, I think, a pretty sound investment. The weaknesses, I would say, lie in the fact that most people don't understand the you don't just get your card and go out there and climb whatever you want, whenever you want. Like they're the employer has responsibilities associated with that activity. Uh, who you work for um, needs to have like a program, you know, with a policy, a written policy about what rope access activity will be, how it's supervised, um, the risk and risk assessments and access work plans that are, that go into it. I mean, the same thing exists for fall protection, literally in the ANSI standards, the same uh, structure exists for fall protection as does for rope access work. And still nobody, you know, not, I'm not going to say nobody, but a very, very mm -hmm. few amount of even large companies recognize or follow that that standard to have somebody who is the you know fall protection program administrator and to have an inspection regimen for all their equipment and stuff um so it, it has the same weaknesses as what we from a standard standpoint would expect of fall protection um but i think that's going to change as more people get into it more people get aware of it how much do you think the um delay of OSHA um, either writing or accepting SPRAT or what's the other one? IRATA? Right. There's actually dozens of organizations, but right. SPRAT and IRATA are the, are the two. That are any of the, the uh, I'll use the, the term accredited rope access uh, certification programs. Certainly one of the issues is that 
it takes a very long time for OSHA to update OSHA law. 10, 20 years for them to accept stuff. And whereas rope access and those certification programs are young, I'm not saying they're five months old, um, you know, the last two or three decades where they've become a lot more popular in industry, particularly in alternative energy sources like solar and wind power. Um, how do you think th that component, OSHA not necessarily having fully embraced rope access as a tool, slows down us using it as an industry? Well, in some aspects, it, it actually makes it easier. Um, because, you know, a lack of rules or a lack of regulation means that there's more freedom to, you know, to apply it. Um, but also not having it recognized specifically by OSHA uh, can be uh, a bit of a roadblock, especially when the authority having jurisdiction sees you, you know, setting up ropes and like, what are you doing? And you try to explain and, and they're like, that's not in my OSHA book. You know, it, that can be a difficult conversation too. In fact, in the OSHA regulations, the the only mention of rope access is in the walking working surfaces um, part of the of the book, and it all it really says is that because uh, it talks about rope descent systems, which is different than rope access. It might look very similar, but it's only for you know you start at the top and you repel or abseil down, and you can only go down, and there's very specific limitations. And in the OSHA book, it says specifically that you know. Uh, these rule, rope industrial rope access is not the same as RDS and that these rules don't apply to that. So it addresses it in that way to say that, you know, it we don't have rules for rope access is basically. Right. What and so there's a lot of gray areas there. But uh, the ANSI Z459 committee, uh, which has some really great representation from Sprat, um, those standards, when they get developed and finished, I think are going to help pave the way. Because then OSHA doesn't have to rewrite regulation. They can just do uh, incorporation by reference, uh, which is a lot quicker than rewriting, you know, the regulations. They can just incorporate by reference like they do with a lot of ASME standards um, to make that regulatory without having to rewrite the book. Right. And that's how uh, Z359, which is the fall arrest uh, standard or uh, A90. The A92 suite, which is for mobile elevated work platforms, how OSHA can uh, leave their law open ended to say, hey, you're going to follow that standard until we tell you that it's been replaced. And that way, every uh, standard cycle that it gets updated, you're complying. Absolutely. Um, or or they're staying up to date to say. Um. I had a question about rope access and I forget what it was. It will come Is back it to superior me. to all other forms of access? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, are there, so some technical questions in fall arrest, there are some weight constraints. Um, not only, you know, your generic harness, your generic lanyard is designed for a person from a, 130 to 310 pounds are there you know and i'm not saying that there are a lot of plus 310 pound people who want to do rope access but it's possible is, we've, is, we've had some that were that were on that end of the spectrum how how physically demanding is it 
I think that's a great um, question. Well, here's the weird thing is if you think about rope access, all right, think about like martial arts, right? You see like uh, kickboxers. It's a very aerobic, you know, these guys are super toned and they've got to, you know, bounce around for a lot of time. And it's a lot of, uh, a lot of cardiovascular um, fitness that's involved. Rope, rope access is more like Tai Chi, right? So me, myself, I'm 43 years old. I'm 245 pounds. I'm a smoker. And uh, um, I could go up and down the ropes just fine. No problem. I've had 22, 23-year-old dudes that, you know, very obviously went to the gym religiously, you know, worked on all those vanity muscles that couldn't make it to Wednesday in the course. So it's not really about fitness. It has a lot to do more with um, trusting the equipment for one, you know, putting your head in the right place, uh, relaxing, and you're working with muscles that are like stabilizer muscles. You're not working with quads and biceps and delts. You're working with all those tinier muscles that are in between them, as well as core, uh, your core muscles to, to keep your positioning and to move up and down the rope. Um, there's a lot more discipline to it than there is physicality. Right. I think a lot of people try to equate it to rock climbing. Um, and whether that was in primary or secondary school where you use the rock climbing wall and you had to do that. And, and, and so there's that association that it, well, it's rope access. It's just like rock climbing. And that was really hard to do because I couldn't pull myself up the wall. And that's not necessarily the case. No, not at all. And there's all kinds of tools uh, to make it easier. I mean, one, one of them right now is a power descender, yep. uh, a really good buddy of mine. He, he uh, uh, is a rep for a company that makes powered rope ascenders. So the guys that do like bridge inspections that I train, they, they do all the regular rope access stuff, but they've got 400 foot climbs that they have to do. They're not doing that, pulling themselves up the rope with their arms and legs, you know, they're, they're putting a power descender on there and they're flying, they're zipping up the rope, like, you know, Navy seals and stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of tools out there that make it easier. Now I will say like, you know, the less fit you are, you know, the more difficult it is for barrier of entry. I've been doing it since 2007 and, uh, you know, I was a lot thinner back then and a lot more fit back then, but I can still do it just as fine now because I've acclimated to it. Um, and what a lot of, what happens with a lot of people is when they, when they have never done it, when they've never hung in a harness before they tense up. And so all their muscles are tensed all the time because, you know, their, their brain is telling them, what are you doing? You're up in the air. And that what happens there is they just get fatigued so much faster. It's like sitting there with your car in neutral and your foot on the gas. You're just burning, burning energy. Yeah. When it comes time to use that energy. You're going to be on empty. Yep. There's also the mo the mental component of it. You, you know, over analysis leads to paralysis is a, a line that a friend of mine uses all the time where um, you can overthink things and you spend all that energy. And that's something that I think a lot of people forget is that um, thinking about something uses energy. It's not like you could sit there. Driving is a great example that. Um, you actually burn calories while you're driving. The mental 
needs or the 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 brain power to actively drive your vehicle and not crash every second is pretty significant and you burn energy doing that well the same thing is anything that we're doing work wise the more you're thinking about it you're burning energy and you can sit there and burn a lot of energy thinking about something and and over analyzing it and then all of a sudden you're exhausted and so now that energy reserve to do the physical side of it is depleted. So it's, you and I have talked about me coming down and doing the class. It's something I want to do to get a better understanding and see if I can do it. And I got to tell you, you're giving a lot of the average stagehands a lot of hope that they can do this because, you know, those stats that you mentioned earlier are pretty, pretty good for, uh, for rope access and yeah. the physical side. So, um, yeah, when it comes to exhaustion, though, I'm right there with you. Like a day at the office and at the computer is more – I come home more tired from that than I do from a day of climbing. Yeah. Stress is a huge uh, a huge thing. And that's why we've seen advances with behind the scenes and ESTA in terms of mental health issues and support for mental health. It's, you know – we see it in touring where, where people are working long hours and traveling a lot and you wear down and you do things to kind of survive. And maybe those develop into worse habits that start negatively affecting you. Um, but it's not just, you know, narcotics or alcohol abuse. It can just be mental wear and tear that breaks you down and depression. So we've become a little better as an industry of opening our eyes to some of those issues. And um, I've said in earlier episodes that hopefully one of the things we've learned through the pandemic is to reevaluate how we're running our industry and to make different choices that 20 hour days are not a badge of honor, but are actually hurting us um, and changing how we do things so that we all can succeed better. That was one thing that was a big change coming to this job was uh, for 14 years, I was working on average 50 to 60 hour weeks, you know, sometimes more, all hours of the night. And uh, coming to this job, the work-life balance difference was huge, just massive, the change in, in my, you know, stress levels and all that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, the... It can be a job, it can be a career, but it shouldn't be your entire life. Um, there's more to life than just working. You got to enjoy the yeah, uh, I don't know. labor. There <laughs> it is. Uh, I'd say uh, on a domestic level, that's one of the things that, um, that my wife re reminds me about or uh, will get on me about is that my personal identity is so tied to my professional identity. Like I don't have hobbies. Like, you know, when I have free time, I'm working on stuff that's related to what I do for work. Yeah. Uh, you know, and she's like, you need to find a hobby. You need to do this or that. And, um, you know, make friends outside of the, you know, industry that you're in and all that. And I think because I spent so many overnights and 60 to 80 hour weeks and, in that period of time, also spending all my waking moments trying to learn 
and keep up. Because like I said, when I got into rigging, I knew nothing. So I had a, a big learning curve to get over. And so I think that uh, I still haven't been able to walk myself back from that and detach from my professional, you know, the professional side of my life. Yeah. It, for me, I don't spend enough time on the sailboat. And usually it's because I'm tired. But um, getting on the sailboat, getting away from work, there's uh, a lot of things that I can do on the sailboat that stimulate my brain uh, in a similar way to what I do with rigging, but it's different. It's purely self-fulfillment in terms of its desire to do it. It's for me. It's, you know, yeah, you're going from point A to point B, but if you've ever been sailing, you know, that's really not what it's about. It's about just getting away from stuff and doing some different things. So yeah, finding a hobby that maybe is tangentially tied to the industry, but it has nothing to do with it can be good. There's also this other thing, and this is very specific to people who are not only younger in the industry, but younger in life. Every single entertainment technician goes through this thing where they convince themselves that any of their relationships with other people, whether it's romantic or friendships, can only exist with people who are within the industry because they, quote unquote, understand the schedule or understand the stress or understand any of the stuff. And I think that does a disservice to you as an individual to not get to experience other things, uh, other people. Maybe you learn things that you can bring to your job from other people in other industries that can make you better and enjoy it more. Um, and, and it just sometimes it can be good. Opposites attract, you know, so don't don't convince yourself that you have to, you know, only be within our bubble because um, there's a whole great world out there that has a lot to offer. Yeah, I think a lot of that also has to do with just the this pure saturation that when you're getting into this business, you don't want to turn down any gig. You know, you want to get on every tour you can. You want to do all of that. And so building that network, that professional network, um, I think takes so much of a person that there's sometimes not enough left for things outside of that, especially yeah. when you're struggling, you know, trying to get into the business trying to find your place in that world, you start to lose focus on your place in the world as a whole. Absolutely. Um, so you had mentioned a, a person earlier as a mentor. Who have some of your other mentors been in the industry? Oh, man, so many. Uh, you know, Dale Rowland was a big one. Charlie Weiner, a huge mentor in, in uh, not just rigging, but in how to deal with, uh, you know, hard situations. Uh, Sherwin Tigador, uh, my best friend, Sean O'Toole. I mean, these are all guys I worked with at Disney. Dave Carmack is a mentor of mine. Um, if it weren't for him, I wouldn't be here in this role. He was the one that actually kind of gave me the push to get out of the nest, so to speak. Um, yeah, those are just a few of, of many people that uh, I look up to as mentors in this industry. And when I say mentors, I don't mean like, you know, they were this caring, guiding hand every day. These were guys, some of them, uh, who put me through hell (laughs) 
in the first like three to five years of my, of my career. I mean, they really tested, like I said, that whole head rigor at Olive Garden thing uh, that used to pick on me about, that was one of many, many things that, um, you know, I guess younger people now in this time frame would, would see that and it doesn't age well because it would look like, Oh, that's a toxic work environment and that's bullying and things like that. And while I don't agree with anyone bullying people or things like that, um, I think it helped shape me mostly because of the way that I reacted to it, not because of what they did, but because of my ability to not take it personally to, you know, move past it because eventually I got to a point in my professional career where some of those people who were my mentors and who were tough on me and some of those people who weren't mentors, but were still very tough on me, they were then looking to me for work. Like I was in charge of stuff and, and they were like, uh, you know, Hey, can I get on this gig? Or, Hey, you know, who you got doing that gig there? Can I get on there? And, you know, I, I could have looked back at at them and said, well, you were mean to me. So, you know, go away. But no, I embraced my opportunity there uh, to grow and to include them. But I think there's been a big change in our culture uh, on a global scale, but also in, in the entertainment industry of what is and isn't appropriate um, in the workplace. And I can't 100% say, Ethan, that I would fit in today's environment. Um, or at least it would feel very weird to me because I'm used to that rougher, you know, sort of mentality, but I don't act that way towards my peers. So I'm kind of somewhere in between very much the right. Gen X in that, in that. Um, so it's a, it's a difficult thing to navigate. And uh, I, but I think we're moving towards a more positive environment for everybody. There's, there's a joke of, I'm, I'm changing details to protect the innocent. Um, a company that uh, entered into a, uh, a contract relationship with a, um, a payroll service as well as HR and other things. And so basically this payroll service becomes what is known as the employer of record. Um, and so they one of the first things you do is uh, harassment training. And so the question was asked to one of the executives of the company, do you have a sexual harassment policy? And to credit, you would you can't get away with saying this, but it was said, which was, yes, we have one. Well, what is it? You will be sexually harassed. <laughs> yep. And that's the old school theater rock and roll mentality, which is we're going to give each other crap. And it's not because we're serious and there's the issue. It's because it, you know, we love you. If we, if we didn't care about you, we wouldn't give you shit is yeah. the mentality. Um, and there is that aspect of an old school mentality of, oh, you got to thicker your skin. And you can try to maybe rationalize is not the world right word, but you can try to, to say, hey, the world is a very cruel place. No. We as a species are cruel to each other. Mother nature is 10 times worse. Oh, yeah. Um, and that, you know, maybe what we're doing as a species is trying to help each other learn to deal with mother nature and everything that's going to throw us into, quote unquote, thick in the skin. I think the the discussion becomes, is there an appropriate way of doing that? And is there an inappropriate way of doing that? And that's 
maybe the fundamental debate. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, <clears throat> we haze each other. We do it as a species. There's a certain little pea portion of our brain that says, you know, I need to do this. I need to, to maintain my place in the social structure for my own self-preservation. Um, but I definitely agree with you that things have started shifting and, and, and either you can evolve with it and continue to improve or you cannot. And then eventually everything is just going to pass you by and you can be disgruntled sitting at home, not working. One of my best friends, uh, Sean, uh, also a mentor of mine, um, people who didn't know us on a personal level used to ask either of us at different times, like, man, you, what's wrong with that guy? Like, he hates you. Like you, why do you hate him so much? I'm like, he's actually my best friend. That's just how we are with each other. You know, we push each other and we argue and, you know, but we're like the best of friends. Um, and while in the rigging world, at least we're not pulling babies out of burning buildings, right? We're not soldiers, but we are making life and death decisions. We are in situations where we're depending on the other person to not screw up and get us killed. And so I think putting that pressure, that, that social pressure, uh, you know, whether it's this machismo thing or busting balls or whatever you want to call it, I think is also kind of important because I want to know that the, the guy or girl on the beam next to me can take some stress that they're not going to fold and yeah. get upset and be sensitive about everything when, when things hit the fan, you know? And so I think that's kind of a litmus test. You got to be able to take some right. shit. You know, I think am I allowed to say that? Sorry. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Apple's over it. I'm listed as explicit. Um, (laughs) I think it's that mentality. You you see it in armed conflict that people who go into battle with each other have a very specific bond because they are literally taking each other's lives and together trying to preserve them. It's the same thing when you're in a high risk situation, pulling points where someone could fall. People's lives are at risk, more risk than when you're well, okay, you can argue whether or not it's more risk, but let's say it's more risk than just standing on the floor of the arena with nothing happening above you and no trucks. Right. Um, That maybe the difference is in that, relationship building process of giving each other shit that eventually there is uh support you know hey i'm gonna give you shit because he did something stupid but then afterwards come up to you and pat you on the back and said you did a great job today yeah there's or, a- or something else one without the other changes it there has to be the positive side to the giving you crap side um in order for it to work. And there are certainly limits and you have to be able to read your audience. You have to tell, Hey, is this person not receiving this as well? And just thinks that I'm an a-hole. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, then you get into the whole interpersonal relationship dynamics between people and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think you brought up a very good point, which is creating stress for other people as they're growing in the business may be a subconscious way in which we are seeing how they are going to respond in a high stress, 
life and death situation where shutdown is not a solution. Yeah, absolutely. Because I've, I've worked with some people that got that deer in the headlights look and things weren't even like, you know, uh, metaphorically on fire at that point, but they were close and that person uh, just froze, had no idea what to do. And I'm like, I don't want to be on on the rope with that person being the, the one I'm going to have to, you know, have rescue me, you know? So there's a certain amount of, you got, you got to know that they can handle themselves. And if you're always nice and, you know, always following the HR handbook, you might never actually know if that person can deal with a, a real stressful situation. Yeah. So I always enjoy asking this question. What is the worst reading horror show you've ever encountered? <sighs> um, I, well, one, I would say, I'm not sure if this fits the context, but there was a show that I had to hang at one point and uh, it was a bunch of sticks of trust that had to go out into the audience from the stage. It was in a theater um, and they wanted them at different heights, different angles. And what we were given besides the trust was a big box of five foot steel and a big box of shackles. And that was it. So when you say horror show, I'm thinking like, Oh my God, you know, is scary. Is that what you're asking about? Or yeah, like I, I was scared cause I didn't know what I was supposed to do with, with the, it can be either. I'll oh. give you, I'll give you the, oh, yeah. the opportunity because it, I think people, when I ask the question instantly go to the mechanical side, but there can be the, the mental side of it. Yeah. That one was the scariest moment for me because we weren't given anything else. And this was probably about like maybe my second year rigging. And I looked at the drawing and the different heights and angles they wanted for all these different six of trust that had to sit over the audience and looking at like, all I have is five foot steel and shackles. Like, how am I supposed to make this work? And we made it work, which I can't even explain how we did that. We came up with some creative solutions, but um, kind of on that, the subject of your original question though, uh, I think every rigger has their Oh shit moment. And I don't think you're, you're really earned your rigging pants until you've had it. Uh, mine was during a new year's Eve installation, um, a bunch of ground support structures in various locations in on one property. And someone had said, Hey, the rig fell, the rig over at such and such stage fell. Mm. And, I, I, sh I was the head rigger for the entire event and I was stuck at one particular stage because they were short and I was like, okay, whatever, you know, like, yeah, right. And then I looked up from a cable or something I was handling and everyone was gone and I'm like, holy crap, it's real. And I drove out there and I'm like a thousand things flash through my head as I'm driving the little golf cart out to the other stage and I get there in this giant goalpost. I think it was probably a, a good 25, 30 feet by probably roughly 40 wide had fallen and mm. fell onto a, a truck. And luckily mm. nobody was hurt, uh, which was, you know, I'm super thankful for because that would have haunted me for quite a while. But um, yeah, this thing fell over and it was real and I was the one in charge and it was uh, yeah. not great. And that was my, you know, crap my pants moment sort of thing. Um, 
granted there is like every catastrophic failure it's never one thing it's always yeah. a chain and this chain started with you know outriggers not being used uh it was followed by the entire goalpost was front loaded you know with movers and lighting everything was on the front face of the goalpost um and then finally a a different uh crew a different uh department at that point was responsible for the guy wiring and they had a new guy working on it by himself and he put up the first guy wire and secured it to the block but didn't put up any of the other guy wires and started tightening the turn oh. and that's that's the catalyst right yeah but, you know there's a lot of things that that could have been done could have been observed up to that point mm -hmm. that, that may have you know changed that outcome um but it was a big learning experience too. I'm I'm just glad that I can say I learned a huge amount from that experience, not just the physics of what happened, but also the the oversight part. You know, I got way too focused on one little fire that I should have delegated when I could have been there ahead of that and hope you know maybe have changed it. So I learned a lot from that, and I'm just glad that I can say I learned these things from that experience, and it wasn't. Uh, polluted with, you know, the, the horror of someone having gotten hurt or, or yeah. even worse, you know? Yeah. I I've had two of those calls in my, my career. Um, the first one was, uh, an led wall that I had set up in a ballroom that I wasn't on the loadout of. It was, uh, some of the Martin LC 2140. So it's kind of the, you know, there's 40 millimeters between the vertical tubes. So it's not heavy stuff. It's heavy enough. And it was only 13 feet tall, like 20 foot wide. It was ground stack. And during the strike, the strike crew uh, disassembled it in the wrong order and it fell over and it knocked someone off a six foot ladder and they hit a table and everything one was okay. But that phone call at 2.30 in the morning saying the wall fell and me not quite being awake and trying to process that um, is very shocking. And then the second one was very similar to what you uh, explained. I was uh, on a diff different job site, thankfully only about two miles away from where we had set up some lighting towers, some uh, self-climbing 12-inch towers with five-foot ears coming out of the side and big base details. And there was an engineering report and everything. And one of them had blown over. Now, I get the phone call that one has fallen. Mm -hmm. And so I jump in the car and I drive at, you know, way over the speed limit on the wrong side of the road to get to the different location, expecting to see one of these towers laying flat on the ground with, you know, arms and legs sticking out underneath it. And when I get on the job site, it's leaning over at like 30 degrees. And it was still not a good situation, but the first thought was, okay, no one's dead. No one's hurt. Now it's just equipment. Now I can breathe. But then you go into the process of how do we fix this? How did it happen? How do we rebound from the situation in that whole experience? And if you ever take one of my classes, I talk about it in more detail. But it's going to happen to you in this industry. Someone's going to call you and says something broke. And how you kind of deal with that stress is going to be pretty significant. Um, 
you know, when I do my trainings, I ask people to raise their hand who's had a rigging failure. And if you don't raise your hand, I'm going to call you a liar. So we've all had rigging failures. It's just a question of magnitude. Was yeah. it dropping a shackle or was it dropping an LED wall or dropping a roof system? Um, one of the questions that I want to ask you is... Um, what is one of your favorite tools right now? And it can be either from the rigging or the rope axis, or it could be anything in the, in the training center. One of my favorite tools. Um, hmm. I would, I would say going into the rope axis thing, there's a, there's a really great descender, uh, that I like to use. Um, so for, I don't know, like, uh, 10 years, over 10 years, uh, I had always used the, the descender. Everyone used Petzl ID, right. And that was like the most popular one. And there's a, another one made by ISC called the D four that I started using about a year ago. And I just can't go back to anything else. Cause it's super easy to use. It's got, you know, there's a lot of features to it. Actually, there's a, such a lack of features to it is what makes it so easy to use. Um, I'd say that's probably my favorite tool at the moment, just because I just got off of doing two weeks straight of rope access training and, uh, that's fresh in my mind. Yeah. That's cool. Um, that made me think of a question. If, if someone wants to come and take rope access training with you, do they need any equipment? Do they need to own their own harness, their own descending device, their own rope? No, no. We provide all the equipment. Um, we kind of, I don't think we've done a good enough job of, of uh, publicizing or demonstrating uh, the nature of our training center. But I like to think of our training center as more of a luxury training center, especially when it comes to rope access. If you've trained in rope access in other places, uh, the environments can be pretty brutal. You know, um, they don't provide much. I mean, we provide lunch for everybody. Like there's coffee and snacks every morning. Um, comfortable places, big classroom. You've been here. You, I mean, yeah, great it's, facility. It's a sweet facility. Yeah. We, we try to make everybody super comfortable, you know, um, but we provide all the equipment. Uh, we kind of discourage people from bringing their own gear, except for like a helmet or harness. So if you have a helmet or harness and you really like it, uh, you're welcome to, to use that for the training. But, but, uh, just to keep the gear from getting mixed up. We, we try to discourage people from using their own kit and we do allow it. Um, I just have to look it over first, make sure it's compliant or compatible with what we're doing and in good working order. Yeah. I mean, the same thing that we, that most people who've done fall arrest training, you know, the employer can allow you to use your own stuff, but they have the right and the responsibility to inspect it and make sure it's in good working order. No, I see. You said you were, uh, you know, you've been bouncing around the idea of doing the rope access training. And I want to make sure you were aware as well as anyone who who might be thinking that is about it, too. Uh, you don't have to commit to that full week and pay that. You know, I think it's like fifteen hundred right now uh, for the class. Every Thursday, every session that we do the Thursday and Friday just prior to it are free rope access workshops. They're free. It's like an open gym. Um, they're meant for people that are already certified, but I do allow people like, if you're like, Hey, um, 
you know, considering doing this training, right. but I don't know if I can commit to the whole week right now, or I don't know if I want to dump all this money in there and, you know, not get, not get past. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm even, you know, right for this. We have those workshops on the two days before the week of the session. So people can come in and spend a couple hours on the ropes, go up and down, do some, you know, some, uh, simple techniques and get a gauge of whether or not it's something they want to do. Cause, and we started doing that one because it gives me a couple days to warm up <laughs> before the main session. But, uh, also we did it because we did have, well, I've never had anybody like legit fail, like get failed during the evaluation process. Um, I have had, uh, probably about a dozen in the last three years who have opted out at some point during the week. You know, whether it's the Wednesday or the Friday, they've said, you know what, I'm, I'm sore. I don't want to do this. I don't want to have to do this for work. And it's just not for me. And then, you know, yeah. Uh, so that's why we do the free rope access workshop stuff. Um, or it's one of many reasons. The others is, you know, to give people a place to come practice because, you know, you learn these things in four days, you do your evaluation, then you go out there in the field and chances are you're only going to use like one, two, three of the different techniques that you learned. Yep. Um, but you can come here and practice for free for two days a month and, you know, practice your rescues, like until you get that down, you know, like that's yeah. the important part to practice. So that's one of the things that we offer. It's one of the things that as a trainer I've fought, um, I wouldn't say fight, but I've, I've pushed really hard with my management to say, no, this is free. We're doing this, you know, as a, as a service and, uh, you know, also as a means to, you know, advertise our training. We want, I want people to have a place to come and, and practice these things, you know, and I, and I sold just, it as people are going to, more people are going to train here if they right. have the opportunity. So it distinguishes you instead of being a commodity, you are a service. Yeah people can and come and get the expertise and refresh. Um, so I, another question that I love asking, and then I'm going to give you a new question that I've have not used in the podcast yet. Um, what is on your rigor or rigging bucket list? Uh, rigor or rigging bucket list. Um, hmm. You mean like as far as like jobs I've never done or jobs or or particular projects or a type of event? You know, for a lot of people, they'd be like, I want to rig the Super Bowl. Well, it's as much as I hate travel. <laughs> um, I have never officially done like a tour. And that's something that I feel like I would like to do in the next, you know, five to ten years is is uh, a couple months on a tour, a theatrical tour, not a rock concert tour. Yeah. Um, Cause I grew up in the theater. Uh, the rock and roll thing was kind of like something I, you know, moved into as far as like the kind of rigging and stuff that I've done. But yeah, I'd love to do a theatrical tour of a great show um, for maybe three months. I, I don't know. I don't know how long tours lasts, but that's one thing I'd say in my, my list of credentials I don't have is I'm not a touring rigger, you know, so I've gained a lot of perspective from people in my classes about how things might be different in that environment. Yeah. I, when I do my trainings and we talk about bridles and, and figuring out bridle lengths, we go over the, the bridle dynamics book, 
which is a, a great resource. But I freely admit to people, I don't build bridles enough to stay super sharp at it. And so I'll use, you know, if there are arena riggers taking the class, I'll be like, how do you do it? Let's learn from each other. Let's, you know, figure out how the people who do it all the time, you know, what little tricks do they have? So that's actually uh, something I really admired about when I saw your class here is that's a, a quality that I share with you as a trainer as well is that collaborative working environment, yep. or collaborative learning environment. Like, I don't want to be the only person talking during a class. I, I want people to jump in. It is a hard line to balance because sometimes you'll get people and they'll start to say something You're like, whoa, uh, yeah, yeah, let's not say that, you know, or let's not go in that direction here because they might be doing something or, you know, trying to tell people something that might not necessarily be safe or practical. Yeah. But, but I, I do have a, a huge respect for you for that and for other trainers that are like that, that I'm not the only expert in the room. Let's see what other people have experienced yeah. they have to yeah. share. Yep. I, I, you know, I separate my skill as a rigger from my skill as an instructor, because as an instructor here, there are two things that I'm doing. I'm just compiling a whole bunch of information and I have the memory to keep it all in some form of order. Or at least I used to. You know, it gets harder as you get older. And two, the gift of gab, the ability to articulate things in a manner that people comprehend that information. Um, yeah, there's a technical knowledge and maybe there's, you know, my ability as a rigor to problem solve helps come into that. Um, but, you know. I joke, I, I can sit up there for eight, 16, 24 hours and talk. That is not a challenge for me. I will do yeah. that all the time, but it's going to get boring and I'm going to, you know, getting everyone else involved, as you said, on the online training where there's that engagement, it's important to get people asking questions because you can also listen. If I'm teaching a room of experienced riggers, we all know how to tie a bowling. But maybe we can go from, hey, I bring up a bowling to what about this knot? And then all of a sudden we're talking about a different knot that uh, is rarely used, but it's giving the, the attendees information that they're going to use and build their knowledge. And so you have to be flexible in an order and a way to go with that. One of my favorite things to do is like for knots, you know, like when I'm trying to teach knots and I see people in the room that like as soon as I say the word bowling, they've already, they just tied it. You know, I'm like, all right, yep. you just volunteered. You're going to help me teach these other 18 people. Nice. <laughs> I like that. You know, and it, it, I like that because it engages them. Otherwise, if you just stuck to teaching the people who didn't know, they'd be sitting there bored, right? Yep. Engages them, gives them a, an opportunity to be part of the process too, without sitting there, you know, watching you know, they're like, I paid for this. And then, you know, I already know some of this stuff. It, it's really hard to gauge. I mean, I came from an environment where I was training my coworkers. So I knew what they could do. I, you know, I knew what they needed to know and what they didn't here. It's completely random. I don't know who's coming. I don't know anything about them. Yeah. And I only get a day or three days or five days, depending on the class to, to acclimate or adapt to their learning style and their, their knowledge level. So yeah. That challenged me as a trainer the most is going from that familiar environment and people to completely not knowing what to expect. Yep. 
I, I did a training, uh, a roof school a few years ago out in California, and it's a group of about 25 people. And there are two, uh, two gentlemen, one of them has now become a, a good friend of mine, who work for a very large AV provider of hotels and such. And on day one, they actually articulated, yeah, we don't expect to learn anything in this. <laughs> I've had we're them. Just, we're, we're just, you know, the employer has told us we have to be here. And I was like, okay. And I didn't respond to it. I didn't be like, oh, you're absolutely going to learn or anything like that. I just little note in the back of my head. All right, let's see. And it was probably the end of day one, maybe the beginning of day two, where we were having a discussion and there was that light bulb moment for both of them, like at the same time. And just, again, a personal rewarding point for me of, I did my job well because they did learn something. It could be the only thing they learn, and that's fine. And I tell people, listen, go to other people's trainings. Um, take a variety of different classes. You may only learn one thing, but you learned one thing, and that's the point. And that's the rewarding part for me as an instructor is either someone who's having trouble understanding a concept and eventually seeing them work out the solution in comprehending it, or someone coming in with a mindset of, well, I already know everything. And then having to be like, oh, I learned something. This was awesome. Um, and it's not, it's not a, see, I was right and you were wrong thing. It's a, I have, or we have converted someone who maybe was not going to be as contributing to our industry as they could be, change their ethos to where now they are going to contribute more and make our industry better and stronger. They've they drank the Kool-Aid, man. I think uh, uh, what I got from that was, you know, as rewarding as it is, that light bulb moment, that say, hey, I taught you how to use this wrench, right? As the most like super basic example. That's not as rewarding as, as what I think you're describing is they didn't just learn something they knew. They learned that they could learn something new. Right. So yeah. Much important. yeah. All right. So I have a question that I wanted to ask before I get to the new question. So okay. this it's two new questions because I haven't asked this question, but one of the one of the uh, tools, one of the advances that CM has recently been uh, marketing and and trying, and obviously with shows not really happening, it's a hard hard sell. But the integrated load cell into the hoist. Um, I'll give you a second to kind of do a sales pitch. What what are what's the what's the deal with those? I haven't played with them yet. I'm assuming it's like. It's not the hook attachment itself. It's what it's attaching to, I would assume. But what's what's the story with the new integrated load cell? Um, well, one of the big sells from our sales guys were that, you know, it saves headroom, right? Because they were looking at like the longer rectangular load cells that are out there. Yep. Look at all that room you're saving. And then I was like, well, there's this one that's just a shackle. And you're going to have a shackle anyway. Right. So, the headroom thing doesn't always isn't always going to be the the deal breaker, and they're like, "Oh crap!" <laughs> but yeah, it's like, you know, it will save headroom in some applications. But the main thing of it is that uh, first, it doesn't have to be 
calibrated on a schedule. It only has to be calibrated if when you do your load test, it doesn't register the correct weight, right? So then you would send it for calibration. Um, and the reason why why I would say it, it's definitely a better alternative is because it's housed inside the suspension adapter. And so it's protected because a lot of problems with these load cells are that they get banged around. Uh, the cable connection gets damaged uh, or gets dirt and grime in there. But our integrated load cell is inside that suspension cavity. Um, and so it, it doesn't get hit and banged around. Uh, the connectors don't get damaged because they're, they are integral inside the hoist. So the, the transition from the cable of the load cell to the cable that comes outside the hoist are, there's a, a break in there where there's a small circuit board. So even if somebody pulls on the external cable, it's not going to damage the cable attached to the load cell. Right. Um, and you know, it, it makes the hoist, uh, more ready for those D8 plus and C1 applications where load monitoring is, you know, maybe required um, and overload shutdowns and things like that. It's also a uh, universal, um, you have the option to apply it to really any load sensing um, control system. So you can get, there's a 12 volt digital one that only matches up to motion labs, but there's a, uh, milliamp i can't remember the number man i wish i could remember the number but there's a, a milliamp version a second version of the load cell that puts out an analog input and um right if you have a control system you can uh, you know you can get that analog input and uh into digital for your system so it doesn't just it's not like you only can use it with motion labs you can use it with a variety of different systems if you know what you're doing and how to put it on. Now, installing the retrofit is, uh, I thought was going to be a much bigger challenge. Um, and it is a challenge. I will say it's a challenge if you don't, if you're not set up for it, if you don't know what to expect. And so Nick uh, Fleming and I shot um, a bunch of videos uh, a few months back that are right now going through technical review. Um, that are basically a tutorial. So it, it's a series of videos that show you from start to finish how to put this thing into a classic or a next generation Lodestar, what tools you're going to need, um, and how to do it yourself so that people can, you know, take hoists they already have and retrofit them. Uh, but anyone buying new hoists can have that as an option already. They don't right. have to worry about working on it. So the 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 question that everyone's going to want to know is, how much does it cost? And I'm not asking for numbers, but is it comparable to other loads or to use the term aftermarket or whether it's, uh, you know, shackle cell load cells or any other stuff? Do you think the pricing is relatively comparable to that? Because I think load cells in general, the big knock against them is, hey, I'm hanging 40 feet of truss on two motors. I don't need load cells. I would argue that if you have an integrated load cell in a hoist, there's no reason not to use it because it gives you real data to verify what you may have calculated beforehand. Um, so I think the question becomes as long as, you know, at some point, hopefully it becomes the norm where every hoist has a load cell and that's just what we're doing. Um, I think that's the direction it's going to go, though, to be honest with you. I think yeah, five it's just a dollar and cents thing. 
Yeah. yeah it's, it's either either we determine that the value is there and so we pay more or the price comes down. It's going to be somewhere in the middle. Um, but currently, do you, you know, are the sales guys saying it's about the same cost? It's slightly more. It's less. To be yeah. honest with you, I have no idea because I get questions like that all the time in training. Like, oh, how much is a pro star? You know, or how much is this? Like, <laughs> uh-huh. I have I have yet to ever pay for a piece of rope access equipment <laughs> or rigging equipment or a motor. Uh, I don't pay for stuff. You know, I'm like that uh, that date that's like I don't pay for dinner. Yeah, you know, yeah. I don't buy my own drinks. Uh, I don't, <laughs> you know, you're buying me drinks. I don't know what you're talking about, but uh, yeah, I, I have honestly no idea. I would have to say ballpark. It's 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 got to be over a thousand. It's probably not more than two thousand, but that's just my like wild guess. Four or five years ago, every once in a while, I'll check on on load cell costs. Um, I can tell you that a lot of the shackle based load cells. For the individual load cell, so no control, nothing else, you're twelve to fourteen to eighteen hundred dollars, depending on if it's wired or wireless. Obviously, wireless gets more expensive, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's uh, you know, just for that, and then you have the infrastructure, you know, the yeah. readout side of it, which is to me is a separate thing. But all right, well, I can tell you, I mean, it's CM. So, you know, we're not going to price it under anyone else. Yeah. Um, And uh, the other thing is like a lot of those are going to have to be recalibrated often because they get, you know, thrown around or abused in the field. Uh, Whereas like this load cell that we have here has been um, has been very consistent as far as like not, you know, getting out of calibration and stuff. So. I would say that's kind of where we're going with it in the sense of like, yeah, it it might be more expensive one-to-one with an alternative product, but the cost of ownership is going to be less because you're not going to have to replace it as often. You're not going to have to send it in to get calibrated, um, you know, as often. So I think that might equal things out, but I think in the long run, it load cells and load uh, monitoring are going to be compulsory sometime within the next decade for sure. Uh, if not here, definitely in Europe. Yeah. Uh, you know, where it already is kind of compulsory if you're using the hoist in a D8 plus or C1 application, uh, depending on your risk assessment. Yeah. Uh, so well, we see I mean, that writing on the wall and we're like, hey, it's better to have a hoist with that built into it than it is to have to have a separate system that you have to employ. Yeah, absolutely. Sweet. I definitely wanted to get that question in there because, yeah, I think it's cool myself. And if I owned motors, I'd definitely get load cells in them. All right. So here's the new question. And for everyone else, yes, I stole this question. It comes from another name session that uh, someone else had mentioned. And I thought it was a brilliant question. So I, uh, I stole it. And so you go. There you go. And if, by the way, you happen to listen to this and you're the person who asked this question, thank you. Let me know who you are and I'll make sure to give you credit. What is your professional superpower? Ah, My professional superpower is um, organizing people, uh, being able to 
I don't, I don't think there's one word for this, but being able to assess a person's um, aptitude, being able uh, to understand how to navigate their attitude and put them at, you know, in the best place to get something done. And that's what I excelled in, in my career as a rigor. And it, it's a trait that I believe is uh, one of my best traits as a, as a trainer because um, I was never the strongest or the fastest or even the smartest, but I could run a crew like nobody else because I knew where people needed to be. I knew how to support the activity they needed. Um, you know, that was a lesson I learned over time, but I think it was, you know, certain parts of that were innate. So I would say, you know, my ability to organize people is my superpower. Good answer. Great question, actually. I like that question. I, yeah, I, I I heard it, um, and I was like, I love that question. It's 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 right up our alley. So, all right. Well, uh, I think that does it for me. I'm, you know, I think I I personally learned a lot about you that I didn't know beforehand, which is one of the reasons I love doing this. Um, and a lot of good information for people. I will, as always, I'll, I'll put a link to the, uh, the CM training facility at Rock Lidditz and to the show notes with some other tidbits that we've talked about. Oh, thanks. And absolutely. And I, I'll tell people, um, I do a training in uh, parallel or with the Event Safety Alliance when we do our Event Safety Summit every year. Obviously, this past year, it was all virtual, so we didn't do a training. But uh, Brian and the uh, the folks at CM have uh, always been really awesome and have offered up their training space to me to use as a location for the class, which is awesome because whenever I'm like, when we get to talking about hoist, I'm like, oh, and then I can roll a cutaway hoist over and use a bunch of Brian's stuff. Or when we, uh, we were using the destructive test stand and I was like, oh, I need a piece of chain to lengthen this. And Brian's like, here, take this piece of star grade chain i was like oh that's going to be strong enough and i still have it in my kit for for making stuff work so um it's a great facility as well as um the rest of the campus at rock lit it's um i mean it, i joke about saying it this way but you really as an industry professional can go and take a vacation at rock lit it's and do some training at CM, do some other training, learn about drones, learn about pyro, go hang out with the folks at Atomic and Tate, hang out with the folks at Four Wall, Control Freak, have a really good meal at the hotel bar, which is called Per Diem. Um, and just it, it, it would be a vacation for people in the industry because there are a lot of fun things to do and you can learn a lot of stuff and and um, and it's easy to get to. Reality is, uh, you know, Lidditz is uh, it's about an hour and 45 minutes from Philadelphia. Yeah. In heavy, tra in, in heavy traffic. But uh, it's it's easy to get to. It's convenient. Um, there's some fun things to do around there. So I definitely recommend if you're like, hey, I got some downtime. Go to Rock Lidditz. Check all the stuff out. Do some training. Um do it as part of the event safety alliance hopefully this uh fall when we actually can meet in person um so yeah my classroom will be open to you well i i again i appreciate it um 
So that's all I got. You got any last words? Uh, stay safe out there. Keep your head up and uh, do the best you can. Pivot where you got to pivot. Good words. Good words. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, I got some other guests lined up that um, and I'll be up front with people. A new episode every week is probably not going to happen for a while, but we'll start dropping new episodes. And uh, as Brian said, everyone stay safe. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep the pin in the shackle. Son, you know your father was a rigger. A rigger was he. The shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be.